Every day is a brand new adventure. So let's embark on this journey together. City News 570 presents Kitchener Today. Welcome to Kitchener Today. I'm Ian McLean, your guest host for this afternoon. I'm the President and CEO of the Greater Kitchener Waterloo Chamber of Commerce. Before I get going, I just wanted to thank uh, all the folks at 570 News who are doing their best to make an uh, amateur like me sound like a pro. But we have producer uh, producers in studio, Brittany and the gang making us look good. So thanks for that. We've got an exciting show today. I'm joined later in the program by uh, Police Chief Brian Larkin. We'll be joined um, by uh, Perrin Beatty, and he's the president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. We'll be joined by a good friend of our, um, J.D. Belavos. He's the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Press. There's lots going on in Ottawa, so great to catch up with him. Ron Gagnon, he is the president and CEO of Grand River Hospital. To, uh, uh, Grand River Hospital. And then uh, last, at the end of the show, we'll be joined by Tova Davidson, and she, of course, is the CEO of Sustainable Waterloo Region. But first, we're joined by a very good friend of business to business, and she comes on frequently, takes pity on Greg DeRocher and myself. But we are joined by the regional chair for the regional municipality of Waterloo, Karen Redmond. Welcome to the show. Ian, I'm so pleased to be here, and what a lineup. I feel honored to be amongst the people that are going to be talking to you today. Well, just remember that it first always has its privileges, and you are first in the list of a, of a great slate of guests Listen, Karen, um, it, this has been, and I, I guess we, you, you and I talk frequently for a number of different reasons on the things we work on, but my observation, having been around public life for, for quite some time, is this has been a really tough time to be elected official over the last two years. Uh, no, one had a, no one had a playbook on COVID and how to deal with it. Um, I think one of the things, my observations has always been Waterloo Region uh, we did a much better job of saying we worked closely together than actually working together, or we talked more about it than we did it, but we are we really demonstrated over the last two years that we did have to work together to get through this together. So whether it's elected officials, police, emergency services, hospitals, business, uh, civil society, the universities. And so one of the things that I, I wanted to just pick your brain on was um, how did that all come together? Like you, we, you, you brought folks together um, and the municipalities early on where you all had to, you know, a, a put in effect an emergency order so that we could keep the community safe. Talk a little bit about the, the start of that. And then I want to come back to how we've uh, started to come out of it. But talk about the beginning stages of that. I think it's a, an interesting story. So our playbook was based on the SARS experience, Ian, and what we learned very quickly working through it is there were things that didn't translate to this pandemic, uh, but they were lessons learned through SARS. So we were very nimble, but we pulled together, you're right, all the emergency service leaders, the area municipal leaders, as well as at the region. We brought in healthcare, we brought in social services, and all of those things led to a very comprehensive review. But I think that two of the really, really important things were primary care were involved to uh, Sharon Ball through the Ontario Health Team in Cambridge Memorial and North Dumfries. 
Lee Faircloth from St. Mary's coordinated the healthcare sector from the hospital perspective. And what we learned very early on, for instance, was the fact that long-term healthcare turned out to be a hot spot. And that wasn't initially anticipated because SARS was a very different transmission than COVID-19. Business played a really important part. They stood up, they helped navigate through the changing framework for the provincial government. And I don't think in my experience, and I've done this for a little while, that the senior levels of government ever responded more quickly to locally identified needs recognizing that municipalities are the closest level of government to the people. And we weren't hearing bureaucratic reasons why things couldn't happen. So we got into a fast forward mode as well as a nimble mode because the context of COVID-19 seemed to change in real time and we had to react to that. Yeah. And I think that that, that's a really important point is, uh, is that, the the speaking with one voice if will of what the needs were of the community and i we found that through best waterloo in the business community that we talked more more offline and had a coordinated approach about what business needed i know that certainly happened as you talked about in the healthcare space and the emergency services and in the municipal level so you all in about two years ago i think it was two years to the day when you uh when you uh, rescinded the emergency order um, you know, you, you went in together and you came out together, meaning each of the municipalities had its own responsibilities at the lower uh, tiers, but also the region. Talk about, you know, the, the, just the, the process of, of coming out so that we're, there was, again, coordination and that there was a, a common understanding in the region of Waterloo about how we were going to come out of um, the COVID restrictions um, in March. So, you know, Ian, it almost sounds trite to keep talking about these being unprecedented times. But when we brought in the state of emergency, it had never been declared, certainly not for a pandemic at the regional level. Area municipalities sometimes had declared states of emergency during floods and things like that. So the seven area municipalities and I, on behalf of the region, with input from all of those players I talked about, and I don't know if I mentioned public health, which who have hugely been a huge player in all of this. I declared a state of emergency. We did it all on the same day. And as of this morning, the area municipalities, all seven of them, have rescinded their emergency order. I have not. I have not because there is a differentiation in what the services look like and how they're provided at the regional level as opposed to area municipalities. There was a certain checklist that were... um, we were looking at to decide whether or not it was time to rescind the emergency order. And we are still running vaccine clinics. We are still redeploying staff. And Ian, the real reality is as much as everybody wants to be done with this pandemic, it is not done with us. And we are still recognizing that it's in our wastewater. That's one of the main uh, indicators that we have right now. And we, we know that there still is a new variant. It's in the community the level of vaccination in our community and the number of people that have stepped up and the number of individuals that made sure vaccine was available with as few barriers as possible to our community is why the area municipalities feel that they're at a level that they can safely rescind that emergency order. We're not there yet at the region. We're head of public health and a whole bunch of services that we feel now is not the time to uh, take that off. Well, and I think I think that that's an important point is in, in many respects, 
when you're when you're dealing with uh, with uh, the services that you provide around seniors and and in commun- uh, um, uh, communal settings that you did. and those restrictions, by the way, I, for our listeners, are still in place across the province until the uh, many of them in in place until the end of April. But it, it seemed to me to be coordinated where the region and the cities were were working together. I, I want to pick up on the point you made. Uh, that we may be done with COVID, COVID is not done with us. And I think as opposed to saying what might come, I, I think the watchword for business and what we're encouraging um, to our business community is we got to be uh, vigilant and we've got to be prepared because we've seen this movie before where things have, have shifted. The, the sands uh, shifted right underneath our feet. Just talk a little bit about that. I think that's an important point for people is we're going to be optimistic. We're going to hopefully get the good weather. We're hopefully vaccinations will increase and we won't see a spike, but we got to be prepared and, and understand it might come and we still have to look out for one another. So one of the things that was being monitored by public health, because public health does a lot of preventative work when we're not in the middle of a pandemic and flu season, we I think we just, reported public health just reported the first sort of wave of regular flu Mm -hmm. this past week so people wearing masks people staying home when they were sick and not making it a virtue and and we're all um, guilty of this right that I went to work with a fever or you know the kids went off to school they were sniffling we need to be kinder to ourselves and recognize also that there's a lot of angst and frustration in the community through the uncertainty, through food insecurity, economic insecurity, some people have lost their jobs, really has impacted every sector of our community. So Mm -hmm. as we come out of the prescribed mandated mask wearing, I hope people will continue to be kind to each other, to recognize that everybody has a circumstance that we may not know about. I was at an event, events are starting to happen in person, and there was probably 60 people in the room. And I think there were only about four or five of us that had masks. And the one gentleman said to me, I'm not taking my mask off because my son is immunocompromised. And I said to him, that's a good decision. I'm not judging that the other people didn't have their mask on because it's no longer mandatory. I was wearing a mask till I got up to speak and then I, I didn't put it back on. But we need to give people the space and we need to be kind to ourselves. And when you're not feeling well, stay home so that you're not spreading COVID, the flu or anything else totally agree and i you know i have elderly parents who uh so i'm always conscious of what i'm doing when i'm seeing them so i'll be wearing a mask probably longer than some but everyone's got to respect that as a good point to respect the choice that individuals make uh, in the community listen coming out if we pivot from covid or or as the stepping off point still around but there are challenges other than that covid i guess has produced um, that are going to come for the from the for the municipality. Certainly, lower tier. But I mean, I think about public transit. I think about a number of infrastructure, uh, some of which has been delayed. We know immigration and how welcoming newcomers. All of which the region touches in one way, shape, or form. What are some of the challenges? I guess opportunities, but the issues that are going to have to be dealt with at the regional level as we as we start to you know get into this next phase or post uh, post pandemic stage of COVID. So Ian, I love the way you framed the question because I have to tell you these past two years, all of our 3,700 employees have been working. Some of them from home, like clearly paramedics, public health, people running the vaccine, transit, they have been on the job. 
but a lot of other people have continued to make sure that the business of the region and that of the community went forward. And, you know, I look at investment in our airport, YKF, and in 2019, there were 70,000 passengers a year. We're anticipating 700,000 passengers a year. And what regional staff and what council has been occupied with isn't just reacting to the pandemic and the vaccine rollout, but has been how do we position this community to continue to be world-class? So there's investment in the airport. We are investing, I mean, two-way all day go. We're getting there. We, yep. We're right now looking at our regional official plan, and we are looking at numbers that predict that we will be 54% additional population by the year 2051. And we have to make sure that we're in a good position um, to provide that quality of life to them. So the business of the region continues on. Listen, uh, that's a great place. We're going to take a quick pause. Uh, When we come back after the break, we'll uh, continue our conversation with Regional Chair Karen Redmond. We're going to take a quick break. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. I'm Ian McLean, President and CEO of the Greater Kitchener Waterloo Chamber of Commerce and your guest host today. And we are joined again in conversation by Karen Redmond, Regional Chair for the Regional Municipality of Waterloo. Karen, before the break, we touched on a number of the things that have been affecting the region and the and the city and, and or the, the, the region and, and, and how we do things. But um, it, it strikes me that it's election season. Certainly, we're going to have a provincial election on June 2nd. Uh, there's a fall election, I'm told. Uh, and actually, I'm a little angry because you didn't come on business to business to break the, the news that you are re, uh, re-offering and running for re-election as regional chair um, in, in the fall election. But I guess the question that struck me while I had you is, there's lots of people who will be considering whether they're going to run. What went into your decision? Like, I mean, you know, people always say, oh, I, I think you'd be good at that. That's good. There's lots of people who have talent. But then there's a whole bunch of other things that, in my experience, you have to go through to say, do I want to do it? Do I have the, you know, do I have the skills to do it? What went into your decision to, to, to think of, you know, you've done four years, probably feels like about 20 because it, uh, COVID is dog years. Um, but when, what went into your decision to, to reoffer? Well, Ian, thank you for the question. And honestly, you never asked me on business to business or I I would have told you it was Nicole Lampa that asked me. I just want to say, give a shout out to everyone who has served these last four years. You know, we talk about frontline workers. We talk about public health. We talk about grocery workers, transit drivers, paramedics. All of them have taken on the chin. It has been very challenging from a public policy point of view to try to navigate this considering the fact that you're never going to get it right in the eyes of everybody. That's the nature of our democracy. I stayed in politics after running it for the school board because I love the process. Uh, So I want to give a shout out to everybody who served over these four years. And some of them have already announced they're not going to reoffer. And I just want to say thank you very much for a job well done. To people who are considering, I would have to tell you, it is probably the most rewarding thing you can do in life. I originally ran for school board was coming off of a lot of volunteering. So anybody that is shaping this community and helping change a personal context or a 
topic that you care about through volunteering, I've always looked at public service as an extension of that. There is a campaign school that has run for several years, and I think there's another one coming up in a couple weeks. We are really appealing through that for women and for more diverse candidates. And, you know, during this pandemic, Ian, one of the things that really came forward was the fact that there were members of our community who were disproportionately impacted for a lot of economic reasons, systemic racism. So we saw the Black, the Indigenous, and racialized communities really impacted to a far greater degree and people who were on low incomes as well through this pandemic. So we need more voices at the table. And I would really encourage anyone that thinks they have the passion and energy. I still think this is the best job in the world. And Ian, when I was knocking on doors in 2018, uh, somebody who had supported me at a past different position said to me, you know, I'm so sorry you're not running for a big job. And I had to smile and say, kind of think this is a big job. And, you know, the decisions made at the municipal level, whether it's regional or area municipalities, impact our families, our community, businesses almost the next day. So we're closest to the people and you can really help shape the shape the way forward. And I'm very excited about looking at the potential, the opportunity that exists for the region of Waterloo. Well, it, that's that's a good insight for uh, for those that are thinking about it. And I, I would just uh, point out, and this is this always kind of strikes me. And there's more citizens in the regional municipality of Waterloo that you serve, and the rest of the than there is in the entire province of uh, of, um, of PEI. And uh, I was just recently in Halifax, uh, which is a you know the seat of government in Nova Scotia. They only have three hundred fifty thousand people, and that's Dartmouth, Halifax. We are a pretty big. Uh, we're a big deal economically and and politically here in 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 uh, Waterloo Region. So, um, listen. Last question before we run out of time, and I I I kind of been doing this with everyone that's come on the show because I'm always fascinated with um, this. Two years has impacted everyone differently. You've just highlighted some of the the ways that various people have been impacted disproportionately, but everyone's experienced this the last two years differently. What are what would be your you know what are the couple of things that you've learned or what are your takeaways that you would uh, want to leave with people from the last two years? I think that we have reoriented our lives, and that may be working from home and deciding that we want to paint the living room or do a home office. It also has pointed out the the gaps in the system when we were staying home. There are people in our community, Ian, that don't have a home to go to. Mm -hmm. And we stepped up. You know, I think of a phone call I had with the the head of our uh, child care system. And she was calling from Sunnyside where she, um, on her own time, was serving meals because they needed people to serve meals. I think of the, the grocery workers. I think of the transit operators, the paramedics, the police, everybody that has stepped up and You know, I think of social services and our counseling services and how they went online to make sure that they could be there. My takeaway is that I think there are pandemics lurking out there. It it is shelter, affordable housing. I'm so proud of the region upping our housing. We were bringing in 50 units a a year. Now we're up to 2,500 and we need to continue to do more. That's over five years. All of those things are really important. The mental health issue is going to be huge. The opioid crisis, Mm -hmm. addictions, they didn't go away. If anything, they got worse. 
But this community has stepped up and figured out inventive ways to do things. I mean, I think of the House of Friendship. I I look at uh, Bridges and Cambridge and the fact that they housed so many people in the first phase of this pandemic into supportive housing who were in shelter. The why? So those partners are what make this community meet the needs of everyone. Well, that's a, it's a great uh, place to leave it. I want to thank you so much. Know how busy your schedule is. We appreciate you taking time to join us today. Always a pleasure. Take care. All right. We've been joined by our good friend, Karen Redmond. She's the regional chair for the regional municipality of Waterloo. It's time for a news break. Coming up after the news, we're going to be joined by Chief Brian Larkin. It appears he's the chief of police with Waterloo Regional Police Service. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Well, welcome back to uh, Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to the show. I'm Ian McLean, President and CEO of the Greater Kitchener Waterloo Chamber of Commerce, your guest host for today. We are joined by a very, very dear friend of ours and, and one that is more familiar than I am to most listeners. We are joined by Waterloo Regional Police Service Chief Brian Larkin. And he took pity on me when I asked him to come on today because I, I needed someone that would be able to back up Regional Chair Karen Redmond and be able to carry the show since I can't do that. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks so much. Uh, good afternoon, Mr. McLean. And it's uh, great to be on City News 570 and the Kitchener Today Show. Uh, this is an exciting opportunity. Um, and, and I know the listeners don't realize this, but we're kind of doing it via Zoom, pushed into yeah. the system. And I think, you know, it's one of the interesting things of the pandemic is that it's allowed us to actually work very differently, and in, including how we interact uh, with our media and our news and our community. So it's great to be here. Thanks for the invite, Ian, and it's good to see you. Well, it's taken two years. You still call me Mr. McLean. I keep telling you that's my dad and that I'm Ian, but we'll we'll leave that for now. Maybe pick up on that point, though, Chief. Uh, the role of policing and, and I think the role of, of public service generally has changed over the last two years. And some of that has obviously been um, you know, um, uh, a crisis is the motherhood of new invention, and we've had to reinvent how we do things. Maybe talk a little bit about um, how you have had had to pivot right away as the as the head of of, of uh, public safety here in the community when COVID hit, and how that's impacted how you've done policing over the last two years. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and I'm sure many of our listeners feel the same way. Like 2020, 2021, and into 2022 just feels like I lost track of time. Um, but, you know, when the state of emergency was issued on March 17th, 2020, um, the, the night before, you know, March 16th, we were gearing up, obviously, for some significant um, challenges in our region around St. Patrick's Day. And then, you know, before you know it, we're actually into full-blown pandemic mode. And, and one of the uniquenesses is we're a 24-7, 365 emergency service. It's not like we can, you know, close the doors and shut down. Uh, but I can tell you within a 72 hours, our team came together. Uh, we were in the midst of rethinking how we delivered services, following, uh, you know, public health guidelines, following the provincial guidelines. Um, and we launched uh, the Emergency Operations Centre, which was led by a team of members, uh, health and safety and uh, you know, obviously procuring even, you know, although we, we deal with communicable diseases and we have, you know, 
lots of different approaches. I can tell you that, you know, we really ramped up, you know, masking and all those different processes. But the other piece that really changed the way we do business is that for a long time, we've been looking at how do we actually change our workforce? How do we become more automated? Um, how do we actually find some uh, some work balance for particularly our civilian professionals? Um, and over the course of the last two years, the pandemic has allowed us significant internal change, even around, obviously, uh, the way we interact with the community. So we really enhanced online reporting. Uh, members of the community can submit uh, video and other information electronically to us. And then the other piece was court systems. You know, we were able to actually uh, really change the way we interact with our court system. And so the way that we manage, uh, you know, prisoner care and control, the way we deliver evidence, the way we deliver testimony, all of these things have been really shifted and shaped by pandemic and COVID. Um, and then the flip side of this, though, was some unintended, like the first, you know, nine months of the pandemic, you know, from sort of March right through to September, uh, the reality was, is that, you know, our road networks, our call volume was down, you know, people were very much in isolation. Um, and then there'd be pockets of the phases where it would slightly reopen. Um, but, you know, we, we did see impacts of mental health. And in particular, I would say in the last 12 months, what we've seen is the impact of, uh, you know, social disorder. Uh, you know, people are, are frustrated, they're challenged. We saw more protests, more demonstration. Um, you know, obviously, you know, nationally, we were involved in the occupation in Ottawa and Windsor. So we started to see some different pieces but we also recognize there's other issues that really came out of this hard in the pandemic. You know, we look at uh, social disparity, uh, homelessness, encampments, uh, opiate deaths continue to rise in our region. So there's these, all of these, you know, things that also reared its head, which allowed us as a police service to shine a light on and discuss. You know, you look at inter intimate partner violence, our calls are up. And now we're also seeing the push in mental health calls for service and demand, which we're working, you know, really hard to actually a triage and actually not get out of the business of supporting mental health calls for service, but ensuring that agencies which are better equipped to provide health services are managing. So it's been a fascinating two years from a policing perspective, uh, the way we ramped up and the way we do business. Um, you know, it's been unique. Um, there, there, you know, obviously I lived through SARS and, uh, but that, you know, made it look like a minor, you know, a, a cold and not to demean it, but, um, you know, the whole pandemic and then managing, you know, we did exceptionally well um, with limited people off until really the, the wave of Omicron came through. We saw these significant staffing impact. But again, you know, it's been an exciting time. Um, you know, the, the one area of concern I have is it's also created a lot of division within our community, within society. And I'm hoping that, you know, now we see, uh, you know, some hope ahead. And, and I think that there, there's opportunities to grow on what we've learned, but also, to re-engage our community and to build those trusting relationships, Ian. Well, just going back, I think the the, the way you've had to pivot and, and and do that calls for service, et cetera, it's changed. And it probably just accelerated what was already happening. Know that you're a, a huge advocate for, you know, transformation in the way we do policing and, 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 you know, making sure it's more inclusive that you're the workforce or the, the police service itself is more diverse. Um, you know, that's an important part is transformation is hard work. It takes a long time. There's nothing fast about transformation. We probably got a head start way I would look at it. I think we got a head start and we got a, we kind of got, we did the hundred meter dash to kind of get started, but 
there's a lot more that needs to be done. Maybe talk about that because, you know, you run a shop with over a thousand people, uh, but to make change in big organizations, it does take some time because you, you're not independent. You have to be working with, you know, other, other service or other um, uh, public sector agencies, not-for-profits, uh, healthcare. Maybe talk about, about how we try and keep the pedal to the metal in a smart way to make change, but, you know, as it relates to policing. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, um, strategically from a leadership perspective, um, you know, when the pandemic hit, I, I will openly admit, I thought, okay, you know, we probably got six to eight weeks of some tough times ahead. Um, and, you know, and I was involved in all these high level meetings with access to information. And I'd leave those meetings and thinking, okay, you know, six to eight weeks, we're going to get through this. Uh, and then, you know, at the three week mark, I'd go, okay, maybe eight to eight to 12 weeks. Um, and but but then I actually pivoted and transitioned with the leadership team to let's not let the actual pandemic, which created a, a you know state of emergency, a crisis, um, a health crisis, um, a significant piece. Let's not let's not let it go to waste. Uh, what in our strategic plan? How do we work with the police services board? How do we work internally and how do we advance some of the work and effort we're doing? Um, and so, you know, even from a recruitment perspective, we actually never stopped. You know, we actually went to a different process. We used a technology, whether it be Teams, Zoom, WebEx. We used, you know, social and, and physical distancing and all those processes. Um, you know, we slowed training a little bit, but we kept it going and we found new ways to do it. Um, and even internally, we looked at some things about, okay, so in the strategic business plan, we can't do this, this, and this because of the pandemic or there's supply chain issues or, you know, the vehicles are going to be delayed. But what can we do and how do we advance? And what we really focused on, uh, Deputy Mark Crow really, uh, and in the midst of this, we actually promoted two new deputies. The board yeah, exactly. uh, promoted two new deputies, uh, Deputy Crowell and Deputy Hilton, amazing leaders, a great selection by the board. But it allowed, for example, Mark to take on modernization. So, you know, we, we had people uh, working from home, like, you know, forever we were told, well, this will never work. Within 72 hours, you know, we had 15% of our workforce working from home remotely. We were able to uh, increase automation, increase access, you know, to our community electronically. And then, you know, Shirley Hilton, our deputy of operations, was able to look at operations. And so I think, you know, we did a good job of not letting the the pandemic impact, you know, reformation and change, doing a lot of culture work uh, around that. And so we were able to connect differently, you know, even from an internal unity perspective, uh, you know, as the chief, I was at, you know, less meetings, I was traveling less, I was, you know, obviously what I miss, what inspires me is community engagement, and that became a new model. Uh, and although I love this technology, I don't think you can build strong relationships and, and keep those connections through Zoom. And I think everybody had sort of had fit, you know, the fatigue of electronic meetings. But I, I look at overall, like we, we did some amazing work. Uh, and now as we come out of it, what's the new normalcy? How do we find that balance of efficiency, technology, modernization? But I, I am, last night I was at probably my first community event in a while, celebrating 25 years of the Knights of Columbus Toy Drive, actually with Chair Redmond. And I was absolutely just, you know, it was so nice to see people, that people were very respectful. Many were still masking, uh, which is great. But it was that sense of connection. You could see people enjoying that human interaction and that celebration. You know, we committed that, you know, this year in the 25 years, we'd make the toy drive the best and biggest it's ever been. Uh, as a celebration of coming out of the last two years of challenges. I want to go back to one point. We talked a little bit about transformation, but the collaboration that happened uh, with, with 
everyone that that touches in in public service, you know, different levels of government, civil society, the universities, uh, you know, it, it was pretty remarkable. I talked with Chair Redmond about that. Um, but the police service stepped up in a tremendous, I mean, you talked about Deputy Hilton. I find that amazing. He had two brand new deputies that got in, um, that were installed literally as COVID hit. So, um, you know, timing's everything in life, Chief. So they, 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 <laughs> I don't know whether they like it or not. But, uh, you know, as an example, they've both done great work. But Shirley Hilton stepped up when when you asked her to take this on and said, we need to be part of the um, uh, the vaccine um, task force rollout. Uh, and, you know, an amazing job by her leadership, but also with all the partners. Talk a little bit about that collaboration and the importance of the police being part of things aside from the traditional policing um, paradigm. Yeah, you know, I've always been a strong proponent um, that policing is a critical infrastructure in our community, but we bring a lot to many different tables. Um, and, you know, let's be candid, in the midst of the pandemic, there was also a social revolution around policing uh, and the role of policing and the calls for policing to look different, the call for policing budgets uh, to be, you know, reallocated, to, to be defunded, uh, all those processes. I mean, there was also some significant social challenges around policing, largely based, you know, out of America, based on the tragic death and, and the tragic homicide of Mr. Floyd, um, which had impacted Canadian policing and globally. And so we're also dealing with that. And, and you know, um, you know, as sort of a student or, or a, a pupil of, you know, the former president in the, of the University of Waterloo, the former governor general, uh, Mr. Johnson, who used to always, you know, uh, with commentary in his public comments, say, you know, there's something unique and special in the Waterloo region and there's something unique in the water of Waterloo region, uh, which is probably why Seagram's actually started here, uh, is that the water made pretty good spirits. But But on a serious note, um, I, I grew up in that that this community, you know, I grew I had opportunities, you know, through Chief Graville and Chief Tarigian to sit at different tables and see the police service uh, very different than who we are. You know, policing obviously does have a rule of law, it does have a an enforcement component. But I also think we have an opportunity to uh, shape and influence public policy. And, uh, you know, uh, there's you know, and I think that it's unfortunate that citizens and, and some some in our community have not seen the level of cooperation and collaboration, uh, even at the regional pandemic control group, which was led by Chair Redmond and Mr. Lochner, the CAO of the region. Um, the amount of co- collective support and work and checking in is simply second to none. And, and that was the piece, you know, when Shirley, they, they were looking for somebody with planning, logistics, uh, coordination, the ability to get a job done. Um, and, you know, Deputy Hilton is that AAA personality in the sense of, you know, uh, give the mission and and give the logistics. And, and that's what we do. Policing does that on a regular day. Um, and so I'm very proud of the, the efforts. And there was others supporting and helping that even from a communication perspective. But I, I think that that's the one thing that, you know, we probably undervalue and underestimate is the power of relationships and the power of our community working together um, and as you know, in, you know, your work with the chamber, as well as being a member of the police board, um, I, I've been bothered, you know, slightly by some of the division in the community, some of, some of the challenges, because I do think we're stronger when we're together. It doesn't mean you can't have conflict and disagreement. That's good, just good democracy. Um, but I do think we're stronger when we're one. Um, and so, you know, we went through some tough times, you know, with the school boards around programming. I think we found the way out of that and we're in a better place and we're building relationships you know, our work with our fire and, and paramedics is second to none. The incredible services, 
So I think there's a lot of amazing things that happened in the pandemic that we should celebrate. Um, listen, I, I feel awful. I, I mean, I had a, a workforce that never missed a paycheck uh, um, that was well supported through good benefits. And, and so I do feel for small and medium sized businesses that suffered through this. Um, I think, you know, uh, we continue through Chair Redmond's leadership to have a strong economic recovery plan in our region. I'm amazed when I drive, um, particularly in the, the urban centers, the towers and the cranes in the sky speaks to a lot of really good stuff happening in our community. And, and I think we should celebrate that. There's lessons learned. We should build on some of the, the gaps and issues that we have. But I do think we should also celebrate some of the amazing work we're doing as a community. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back on the other side of the break, I still got a few more questions before for you before we let you go. Uh, this is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. I'm Ian McLean, President of the Greater Kitchener Water Chamber of Commerce, your guest host today. Thank you for joining us. And welcome back to our, our guest from before the break, Chief Brian Larkin from the Waterloo Regional Police Service. Chief, before the break, uh, we do appreciate you taking time. I know how busy you are. Um, one of the things that, that I, and we didn't, I just want to, kind of make sure we don't miss the opportunity. You talked about collaboration, transformation, and some of the the discord that we see in the community. One of the things that we think everyone is experiencing differently is is uh, is mental health. Uh, we know that the police service and and everyone in in first as first responders and in healthcare, nurses, doctors, you know they've been they truly have been the front line. Maybe just talk about the importance of recognizing that both in the community and you, you see that in your calls for service with your members, but also how we take care uh, and, and understand that we need to take care of our um, of, of those that are, are leading on the front line. Yeah, no doubt. It's been a tough uh, couple of years for everybody. Our lives change significantly the way we interact, the way we, you know, socialize, uh, the way that we find, um, you know, activities going, whether it's to gym, yoga, those type, the way our, our kids recreate. And, and I think that manifests itself internally uh, from a policing perspective. You know, we saw people working from home. Uh, we went to, you know, this uh, distancing piece. We rearranged offices, uh, you know, the, the the typical coffee clutch or water cooler uh, opportunities had, had diminished. Uh, you know, at the height of the pandemic, uh, at the start, you know, even myself, uh, you know, two deputy chiefs, you know, 10 feet from my door, and we're talking by phone, uh, we're talking by Teams or Zoom, like it was just a very unique process. Um, and so I think the wellness piece is significant. You know, throughout the pandemic, we had some specific opportunities for mid-leaders and senior leaders and our members uh, through Homewood around, you know, leading and, and working during a pandemic so our members could actually understand and, and see, um, you know, different resilient uh, opportunities um, and then, of course, you know, we're also our frontline members uh, and members doing the work. We're experiencing uh, pandemic fatigue on the outside, you know, so they're going to calls for service. They're being, you know, they're, the mask wearing, uh, the hand washing, the trepidation, you know, because we would, you know, go to a service call and then, you know, public health would advise, you know, there's a public health issue there. There may have been a transmission of COVID. And so, you know, we even had uh, working with our labor association where they had, you know, hotels available for our members so families could isolate. Um, all of these things take its toll, which is why, you know, we continue to invest in the wellness of our members, our, our health care plan. And, and probably, you know, if there's one decision I could have a redo on, um, it would, you know, we, we shut our gymnasiums down. 
um, and our fitness rooms down, which was really a, a very much an outlet for our members, you know, to, uh, to, you know, and, and halfway through the pandemic, we shifted and we reduced, you know, capacity sizes, but a lot of feedback from our members around that they just felt that, you know, in working a 12 hour shift, um, you know, particularly in inclement weather where you can't go out for a walk or a run, uh, they missed that ability to recreate and to do something. And so there's lessons learned in all of this, but, um, you know, I think coming out of this, uh, hopefully we're in good shape. Uh, we continue to invest in our programs, our wellness committees fired back up, our gymnasiums are reopened, um, still at some capacity limits, but I think we're, we're in a better place, Ian. Awesome. I wanted to take a minute. You, you are one of the things I've noticed. I, we spend a, a lot of time because of pandemic control, a variety of things we're on. But where I would see you often pre-pandemic was at any number of community events. Not not necessarily because you had to be there, but you take seriously your commitment to a number of different charities, including Special Olympics um, and and a variety of other things. And we only got about, I think we got about two and a half minutes. So I want you to take one minute on this and then I got one more question. So, but talk about the importance of, of that to you and why it's important to the community. Well, really, you know, for me, I get inspired by it. Um, I love people. Uh, I think that policing, as I alluded to, is a critical infrastructure. It allows people to get a different sense of who the chief is and, and who I am as a human by being there and connecting and interacting uh, but also lending a voice of support. You know, we raise a lot of money for United Way, uh, for, you know, the uh, toy the toy drive, the food bank, uh, Cops for Cancer. There's a lot of different things that our members do. And But for me, you know, being at an event and being with people inspires me. There's some real tough days in this gig. Uh, I won't sugarcoat it. It, it can be a very all-encompassing and at times uh, almost a soul-sucking uh, position um, and so for me, being with people, it just inspires me and, and you see all the good that's happening. So uh, that's, I believe it's also a responsibility to give back. You know, I'm looked after very well by the police board and this community. And so it's a small way of giving back. Well, you do a great job. Okay. Last question. I'm asking everyone today. We're kind of <laughs> at a new stage. What, what's your one or two things you'd leave in the last minute we have um, that you've learned or your, your takeaway from, uh, from the last two years of COVID? Well, what I've learned is that, you know, leadership is, you know, I, I probably knew this, but I, I, what I've even learned more is that, you know, making hard decision and leading in times of crisis is hard. And it takes a lot of resilience and it takes a lot of determination and values-based approaches. Um, it's easy to be in opposition. It's easy to throw javelins. It's easy to criticize. It's very difficult to appreciate and one of the things that I think I've, you know, immensely learned is, you know, uh, is internally, you know, showing appreciation for the amazing members that 24-7, 365, get it done every single day. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes you get caught up in the world and you forget about those things. And so I'm extremely proud. The second piece really is that we live in an awesome community. We're not perfect. We have challenges. We have issues. We have social issues. We have social disparity issues. We have systemic racism issues. But I think we got an amazing group of leaders and amazing lived, those with lived experience making a difference. And I guess coming out of this, my one learning piece is let's continue to advance the region to make us the best community in Canada because we're awesome. Great place to leave it. And the bells ringing outside of police headquarters there <laughs> says it's time for me to go to a news break. Listen, thanks for joining us today. We've been joined by Waterloo Regional Police Service Chief Brian Larkin. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Ian. Have an awesome weekend and all the best to the team at 570.
All right, it's time for a news break. Coming up after the news, we'll be joined by Perrin Beattie. He, of course, is the president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. I'm Ian McLean, your guest host today. I'm the President and CEO of the Greater Kitchener Waterloo Chamber of Commerce, and we're joined on the line by one of my uh, favorite people, and he is Perrin Beatty. He's the uh, uh, President and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Uh, welcome to the show, Perrin. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Ian. Listen, uh, you're always gracious with your time. I know how busy you are, especially with everything that's happening in Ottawa and around the world, and you're the the voice for Canadian business uh, and the network of Chambers of Commerce right across the country, 450 strong. Um, and so I, I wanted to take the opportunity. There's there's a, um, the federal budget is coming up, uh, and I, I wanted to get your your thoughts on um, as we came out of the we, we forget that the election, the federal election was was less than a year ago um, or a year ago, give or take. Um, the government at that time, the priority was coming out of COVID and on climate change, housing and fairness. Um, but now this week, we've seen uh, some tremendous shifts in the sand underneath the feet um, of, of politicians. Not only uh, do we have the NDP liberal coalition and a tremendous amount of, of spending that, that they want to do on social programs, but a report out this this week um, that if Canada is going to get up to its NATO commitments uh, militarily and, and in defense spending, it could be billions and billions of dollars. Maybe talk about um, the impact of all of these things on the federal budget and what it means for Canadian business uh, as we try and grow to get out of the, the whole uh, budget hole that, that COVID has, has dealt us. Ian, if you think back to the federal election last fall, uh, it seems a lifetime ago. Mm-hmm. There have been so many developments since then. Uh, we had the uh, Omicron wave that has come since that time, which set back our plans for opening and for recovery. Uh, we had to deal with the blockades at the border and, and in Ottawa. Uh, we have the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Uh, we have the agreement this week between the Liberals and the NDP, which sets out a, a parliamentary agenda for, for the government as well. In so many different ways, we found that, that the landscape has changed from the, the time of the election. But a single fundamental still remains. We need to be focused in a laser-like way on how we restore economic growth in Canada. Now, whether we're looking at how we pay for the programs we, we already have in place or new programs, you cited defense spending as an example of one of the areas where there'll be pressure on us to increase our spending, or in areas that were included in the agreement between the Liberals and the NDP, uh, you have to have the revenue to be able to support that. And you you can't do it simply by writing checks on a government bank account that's already well into the red. You have to look at ways of, of growing the economy through private sector investment. So um, we'll see a federal budget probably within the next three weeks or so. And uh, our hope is that it'll be focused on how do we we create growth in the economy and what is the strategy for that? Now, we can't wait until after COVID is over to, to put the strategy in place. We need to have it now. Yeah, now I, I think one of the, the pieces that, that is, is, uh, is striking, I think in the, in the last budget and, and during the election, the federal liberal government talked about there being 
uh, anch- fiscal anchors and guardrails, it seems to me that that's completely gone. And and on the one hand, you've got inflation and it's impacting businesses and individuals, the the, the increasing cost of doing business and living our lives. Um, we also have the 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 impact of of uh, of um, COVID is not over, but we need to be getting through that. The fiscal anchors or or, or the guardrails, that's pretty important signal for um, credit markets, for, for business investment. Um, what should they be doing uh, to to at least recognize that we there is no there isn't a, a spending or a money tree in, in Ottawa that produces free money? We have to have a plan. What is the Canadian Chamber saying uh, in that regard, in terms of saying you're going to make these investments, but do we do we not need to have a plan that that makes sense? Well, and, and that's precisely the point. The starting point is the government has to acknowledge the fact that that we can't borrow our way to prosperity. That what we have to do is to have growth and and have the private sector investing. Now, the government actually has more maneuvering room than anybody would have anticipated, ironically, because of, for example, inflation and because of the fact that uh, as energy prices continue to go up, revenues for governments are going up as well. And so you're seeing that both at the provincial level and at the federal level, that the size of the deficit that governments have been looking at previously is in fact shrinking somewhat, which is giving them somewhat more uh, maneuvering room, not for the right reason that they've brought, that they've brought uh, controls over spending, but rather that that uh, as a result of inflation and uh, higher prices that that uh, you'll see more tax revenues generated. Uh, what, what we need is a recognition that that governments like businesses or like households have to live within their means. And we haven't seen that. We've been lips, we've seen lip service paid to that, but not a, not the sort of fiscal anchors that you're talking about, not a strategy that that uh, will lead us back to, to balance budgets again. And uh, we need to, to, to get clarity and we need to get clear signals from government that it takes this issue seriously. One of the things, you, you have a unique vantage point because you do represent chambers from right across the, the country. And you're, you're dealing with provincial chambers of commerce and, and governments uh, right across the country. Uh, it, it strikes me with that unique vantage of seeing the country from coast to coast to coast, every part of the, the country and, and region of the country and every province has felt the impact of COVID in a different way. And what are your observations around that? Like, like manufacturing is, is doing, you know, what was, was impacted, but you know, if you're in the oil sector, you know, there was, there was a lot of different pieces going on. How would you kind of, um, observe how different parts of the country um, were dealt uh, different hands during, during COVID. But whether it's COVID or, or any other issue, the, the lesson when it comes to the Canadian economy and Canadian society is that one size doesn't fit all. That uh, what works in Ramouski may not work in Mississauga, what works in Kitchener may not work in Kelowna. And that we have to have policies that, that recognize the, the diversity of the country, both in terms of, uh, of the approach that it takes from region to region in, in solving issues, but also in terms of the diversity of our economy. So you uh, look at, at some sectors. So the digital sector has been doing very well during this. And we've seen 
Now, the clean economy digitalizing at, a, at an incredibly rapid rate, and that bodes well for the future as well. But then you, you take a look at an area like travel and tourism, where, where companies being badly battered, and uh, where it looks like we may be able to salvage the summer tourist season instead of losing three in a row. Now, you know, that's good news if, uh, if we're able to do that. But this has been a very rough time for anybody involved in hospitality, travel, and tourism. And it means then that the strategies that we have uh, uh, need to be nuanced and tailored to, to deal with the specific needs. Uh, there's there's a one sort of a follow on to that. One of the things you talked earlier about uh, the the strategy for economic growth, because that's we we know we can't cut our way um, to to uh, to balance um, or not entirely. We know we can't tax our way uh, to to balance budgets and and more more um, uh, fiscal sanity. But there, there are some strategies of how do you incent business and the private sector to cre- invest and create the jobs that are the real real uh, path forward. Um, interprovincial trade barriers, it, it sounds arcane, but it's probably the one thing that we really should focus on. Of getting, our, getting out of our own ways of having barriers between provinces and regions is one of those things that the Canadian Chamber has been been a big advocate for that, and and uh, and a review of the tax uh, system as a whole in Canada. Are those two of the big pieces that we should really get a hold of um, as as big big chunks? They, they sure are. You know, I think people are expecting that that what business is asking for is simply why don't you reduce taxes for business? That's not our our highest priority. It's how do you create an environment where business can flourish? Taxes are one factor there. But what we need in the case of taxation is to have a full review of the tax system to ask ourselves, is it fair? Is it efficient? Is it modern? Does Does it help us be more competitive or does it make us less competitive? None of the political party leaders had been born the last time there was a full independent review of the of the Canadian tax system. It's, it's time to do another one. Um, I, the other point that I make to, uh, to Christopher Freeland and to other federal officials is that there are things that the government can do that won't cost them any money that can be very beneficial to, to business. Regulatory reform is one of those. And the starting point, certainly for regulatory reform, is can we take this this market that we have in Canada that's comparatively small globally and do away with the barriers that drive up the cost of doing business. We could we could create greater consumer choice for Canadians. We could make Canadian business more competitive. We could reduce costs for Canadians in the process. And it would not cost the federal government a penny to, to do that. It would be a matter of, a, of policy change and of, of their activating provincial governments to take down uh, these barriers. And there are many other areas like this where uh, it's not a matter of writing another check on the government's bank account or of giving special favors to business, but, but rather operating in a, in a way that's more strategic and more, more rational than we've, we've been doing. I, I, I'm struggling with the example you used, but in interprovincial trade, because if people say, well, it, it, they get lost in it, but it can be more expensive to, to buy a Canadian product example in another province than it would be in another country. Or, you know, give us some of the, a couple of examples where that, that just is, it makes no sense for us to be um, uh, penalizing our own businesses across the country when, 
when we should be encouraging, as you say, the, the opportunity for Canadians to buy Canadian products? Well, our own businesses and our own workers. We have uh, barriers to mobility within Canada that, that prevents people from one, from one region to be able to comfortably take their skills to other regions and put them to work because they, have, have an, they often have to be recertified to do something that they were doing in another part of Canada. Um, you know, the different regulations for driving a truck across Canada mm-hmm. uh, simply drives up uh, costs for us. Um, the, the the fact that you would find that, that governments would have local procurement programs to say, mm-hmm. we're going to pay more money because this person, this company is from our province than to accept uh, a product from another province simply drives up the cost for for uh, uh, taxpayers. It, it, and, and Ian, you and I both know, as, as people who represent the business community, it's never the guy with the best product at the lowest price who's arguing that there shouldn't be competition. Mm-hmm. It's always the one whose price is higher or who has an inferior, an inferior product who says, no, 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 I don't want to be in a competitive marketplace. Uh, I want somebody, I want the government's thumb on the scale to make sure I can win. What you do is you create inefficiencies in the market. You also, for uh, companies that are interested in, in going global, you take a small market, you divide it up 13 times, and what you do is you drive up the cost of doing business in Canada. So the, the home base for this Canadian company is not competitive when it goes into global markets. This just simply makes no sense. It, it costs us jobs and opportunity and tax revenues. Yeah, it, it never made sense that we've got all these trade agreements. Uh, we've renegotiated NAFTA. We've got the European Free Trade Agreement uh, and many others. Yet we don't really truly have free trade in many, many sectors in Canada. And it needs to be addressed. Listen, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, uh, we'll be, uh, we've got a few more things to cover off. We appreciate you taking our time. We're joined by a good friend of mine and of the uh, Greater KW Chamber of Commerce, Perrin Beattie. He is the president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. We'll be right back with more on Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. Uh, joined uh, with our good friend, Perrin Beatty. He, of course, is the president and CEO of the, uh, not great, no, that's me. He is the president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Perrin, before the break, we talked about some of the the, the, the sort of Canadian-oriented issues of how to drive growth and, and, um, and economic prosperity coming out of COVID. The one that I think has been the wild card, there's been a number of wild cards, but certainly globally, the 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 outrageous uh, war being waged on Ukraine by the Russian um, by Russians uh, Russia and Putin is is going to have a huge implication already has and will have long term effects on the global economy and in that or global security. What, what's your observation of or, or talk to us a little bit about the work that you're doing? I know your your head is deep into this. Um, but I think people need to understand how that, what seems to be over there, is going to impact us here. Ian, last time that, that we spoke, uh, this wasn't on the horizon. It wasn't something that we anticipated. But we are currently living through what is the most dangerous period in our lifetimes. 
It's, it's that simple. And already the, the global economy has been roiled by, by this. Obviously, there's a human tragedy taking place. And the fight that's taking place is one that's existential, existential for, for Ukraine, but also it's a fight for the democratic system itself. And uh, as a consequence, then, uh, events like this reshape everything. They reshape the nature of global politics, and they reshape economic affairs as well. If you look at it simply from an economic perspective, um, it's affecting global markets dramatically. The price of oil uh, is being driven up very substantially, and countries are looking at how do they get off a reliance on, on Russian oil and gas, where they're subsidizing this war as a result of, of paying for it. Um, this should cause those of us in Canada to ask ourselves, what's the contribution that we can make with our resources to free the democracies from having to rely on, on Russian oil and gas? What do we need to be able to do to do that? We maybe should be looking at a North Atlantic energy alliance in the same way as we have a North Atlantic uh, treaty organization. Um, this is part of global security, and Canada can be a major contributor. But we don't have the capacity today to be able to deliver these, these critical products that are desperately needed. Um, you look at, uh, at commodities like potash. Uh, the, uh, Russia is the largest producer of potash in the world. Canada's number two. Um, Russian potash is not going to it's not going to be available to the same extent to global markets as it's been in the past. Yet that's a critical commodity for agriculture around the world. Canadian potash producers need to be able to dramatically increase their production to fill that gap, and we have to have ways of being able to get that product to market. That's why the threat of a, a strike among CP workers uh, a few days ago was something that was a, a major concern. Um, Canadian wheat, uh, Ukraine and Russia are major producers of, of wheat in the world. Obviously, the, the uh, sales from those two countries are going to be down substantially this year. Canadian wheat producers are, are going to need to fill that gap. And you can see a whole range of other areas, critical minerals, um, other supplies that we may, would normally get from Ukraine or from, from Russia. We will need to source somewhere else or Canada itself can be a source for some of these. But it means then that, that we need to go back to the drawing board on government priorities and on, uh, and on uh, our strategies to, to look at how we respond to all of this. And then finally, we need to ask ourselves in Canada, um, first of all, should we be substantially increasing our defense spending where we've been a laggard? Uh, are there other things that we can be doing to, to assist, whether through energy or other means of trying to support the democracies? Listen, I, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. I, I know just, just because we're about on, on top of uh, the next news break. COVID two years on, what's the one thing, the biggest takeaway or observation you would, uh, you, you've, you've taken away from, from your perch at the Canadian Chamber? Well, we hope that it's moving from a pandemic to being endemic, but that doesn't mean it's going away. And it means then that we need to be planning now for potential new waves of COVID, possibly with new types of, of the virus, new variants. And we need to find ways of managing it, living with it, without resorting to going back to lockdowns again. Uh, bang on. Amen. That is exactly what we need to do. we got to manage it without shutdowns, but we need to be smart about it. Listen, thanks so much for taking the time. I know how busy you are and you uh, you got a full plate. You do a great job uh, 
representing all of our chambers and Canadian business. Uh, so thanks for joining us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. All right. We've been joined by Perrin Beatty. He's the president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. It's time for a news break. Coming up after the news break, we'll be joined by J.D. Bellavance. He's the Ottawa Bureau Chief for La Presse. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. I'm Ian McLean, presidency of the Greater Kitchener Waterloo Chamber of Commerce, your guest host for this afternoon's festivities. As promised, we are joined by my very dear friend, a very, very smart man, Jean-Denis Bellavance. He, of course, is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Press, and he is a regular on Business to Business on 570 News, or on City News 570, I should say. And so he's uh, he's agreed to come on because there's just a couple of things that have happened in Ottawa the last uh, the last few days that we wanted to get his expertise. And he, have, like everyone, many of us, is firmly ensconced at the Bellevance bunker in Gatineau, Quebec. And but he's taken time out of his busy schedule to be with us, Joel Denis, um, Let's start with um, the the news out of Ottawa on the New Democratic Party and the Liberal Party having a, and it's not a coalition, it's a parliamentary agreement on some policies, uh, but it is, whatever you call it, it is significant because it is a huge, huge investment in social programs that's going to really be interesting how it hits the federal budget, as an example. What, what's, your, what's your takeaway um, uh, or to get us started on this? Well, uh, I think you're right in saying that this will have huge implications politically, uh, but also fiscally and economically. Now, fiscally, uh, you can expect more expenses, more spending in uh, social safety area. So the social safety net will be widened as a result of this uh, pact between the Liberals and the NDP. And I'll give you a few examples because uh, the Liberal uh, uh, government has agreed in exchange for support for the NDP for the next four years, the next four budget that will be tabled in the House of Commons, one coming up uh, in, in early April. So the Liberals have agreed to implement or, or create a national dental care for low-income Canadians. And that will cost close to, one, once it's fully implemented, probably $1.5 billion a year. So that's a lot of money that will go to that program. The Liberals have also agreed to try to begin setting up a national pharmacare program and the cost of it is pretty huge, so, but that, w- that will imply negotiations with provinces uh, because, uh, for example, in Quebec, we do have a pharmacare program that exists. It needs to be uh, implemented elsewhere in the country. But the, according to the parliamentary budget officer, that would cost about uh, $19 billion a year to be fully implemented. So that's a, that's a lot of money. So you're talking about big investment. And there's also some uh, commitment on the part of the Liberal government, government to spend more in social housing. So we know that there is a, 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 a affordability, affordability issue in terms of uh, getting access to a, a house, buying a house. It's very costly if you live in Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, Ottawa, and big cities. And it, even in small, smaller cities, it's getting more expensive. So um, more investment in that area. And so what does that mean? It means that um, the next federal budget will have an orange color to it, very much so. (laughs) And a lot of red. (laughs) Yeah, orange being the official color of the NDP. So 
and and the NDP is already uh, uh, saying that we need to see some actions in the next federal budget. And I suspect that Christopher Freeland had to rewrite part of their budget to uh, take into account what has been agreed to by the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, and Jagmeet Singh this year, uh, this, uh, this week. Now, one thing that I want to point out very qu- quickly uh, before uh, turning to more questions, uh, Ian, is the fact that there will be a quarterly meeting between Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh to see how this deal is going. In addition to that, the uh, M- ministers, uh, liberal ministers, uh, agreed to meet on occasions when it's uh, necessary uh, NDP MPs to update them on where they are in terms of implementing this deal. And also uh, the bureaucrats that are in charge of some of the departments will also be uh, made available to answer some questions that the NDP MPs may have. Now, there will not be any NDP MP sitting around at cabinet table. So it's not a formal coalition. It's, as you mentioned appropriately, so it's a parliamentary agreement to collaborate for the next four years. And that means that if this deal holds true until the end, Mr. Trudeau will have been in power for 10 years. Well, there's lots of room for friction that you just pointed out between meetings, <laughs> prime minister and leaders and MPs and ministers, etc. cetera. Um, the, the, I think that that was the starting point of saying uh, there was a budget coming, already expected there was going to be big investments in housing. Uh, I think some of the other other pieces were climate change and then yep. fairness. Those were the priorities the government said less than a year ago when we went through the federal election. Now we've got this new agreement. The other part this week, which was remarkable and, and reasonably needs to be done, as we think about Ukraine and Canada's role within NATO, but also as a middle power or, a, 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 you know, having influence in global affairs, we know that we have been chronically underfunding the military and defense spending uh, to get up to 2% of GDP, which is Canada's commitment, long-standing commitment uh, of 2% of GDP for, for defense spending to support NATO's, uh, amongst other things, but to support NATO. Um, I think the parliamentary budget officer, I think you said this morning, we were on the phone recording business to business, $20 billion a year um, for, for military spending on top of what you've just talked about. I mean, talking massive, massive investments, you know, that, and, and I don't think we have any choice on the military front. No, exactly. The, uh, as you mentioned rightly, so I think the armed forces, our men and women serving in the Canadian armed forces, uh, they, they have been, uh, you know, underfunded for the last few years. In fact, we're still talking about replacing our good old CF-18 by new fighter jets. We've been talking about this for the last decade. So it's, it's a bit embarrassing to when you compare uh, the procurement policies of Canada to the, those of Great Britain, for example, or United States. When they decide to purchase something, they go on and purchase it. Here, you have political intervention that brings the cost up at the end of the day, even though they want to have a fair and open uh, competition to get a best deal. But at the end of the day, it's more costly because it would take so much time to get them. But currently, we are spending about $23 billion on national defense. That equals to 1.4% of our GDP. Uh, And we need to bring it to 2%, as you mentioned. And that would mean close to between 17 and maybe $20 billion more in spending. But what do you spend it on? That's the key question. Uh, equipment when you decide to purchase new airplanes or new boats or new uh, uh, frigates 
it takes a little while before it gets built and you get it delivered to your house. It's not like a, uh, ordering a product on Amazon. The next day you get it. It's not the same thing. <laughs> it's a bit more complicated than that. But it, clearly there is a lot of pressure on Canada and um, to increase the military spending because we need to do it just to be able to say that we are present when we're called upon to help uh, countries like Ukraine defend itself in, in some sort. But also, uh, uh, one one thing that is uh, of interest, I would say, is that the last time we did meet a 2% target was when Brian Mulroney was prime minister in the 1980s. And at that time, Cold War was still very much a factor. We're still afraid of uh, the USSR. And we're, uh, you know, respecting our obligations toward NATO, spending 2% of GDP. We haven't done that in the last 30 years since then, since 1984 or 86. So it's been a while. Well, it's back to the future or it's like fashion. Give it 20 years and we'll be back in fashion is that we are, we are now uh, being led around into a global crisis by Russia again. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, it's going to have real world Im- implications for, uh, for not only the, the, the poor people of, of Ukraine and, and uh, the, uh, uh, Europe, but it's going to have implications for budgets and for people and for the choices that Canadian government and other governments right around the world are going to have to make. Listen, we're, um, we're, we're, we're seeing a new global order being written right now as we speak because of Russia's actions. I think that's a fair comment to say. Absolutely. Now, and, and I, I at the risk, I'm sure someone will tell me that, you know, when we talk about the NDP liberal uh, agreement, that that's on policy and we should only keep it to the policy of whether it's good or bad to have pharmacare or good or bad to have uh, dental care and, and how we pay for it. The reality is that you can never get far away from the politics of it. It still needs to get through. It still needs to get through parliament. You still need to get um, a majority in the house of commons. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm really interested. I, I, I've thought about this uh, getting ready for this interview. I'm interested in your thought. How does this impact, um, uh, well, we may make it to 2025, how is this going to impact each of the parties? Like, I think this could have a mm. profound effect on on how people view the parties. The Liberal Party has got stability. It's going to, it's clearly gone tremendously to the left. The NDP is getting part of what it wants, but are they going to benefit politically? And then who knows what the, the Conservative Party is going to do? They have a choice to make in what direction they want to go. What's your observation around, um, you know, I, I won't hold you this. I won't replay the tape in six months, but what's your, <laughs> what's your, uh, your, your first plus reaction to that? Well, I would say that the biggest winner of this deal, the pact that was uh, announced this week by the Liberals in the NDP, I think it's uh, first and foremost the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau himself because he's buying some time himself some a lot of time to establish his legacy in terms of a social safety net, uh, a wide, a being wide in Canada, fighting inequality, fighting climate change and all that. Now, um, the, the, uh, I think the NDP is also a bit of a winner out of it. Uh, there's an, a, a, a bit of an argument right now among uh, experts as to why is the NDP collaborating so closely with the Liberals. At the end of the day, they might be swallowed by the Liberal Party because the Liberal Party is so much on the left, but uh, the NDP will get things done that it holds dear. Um, and, and that's the key uh, message that the joint meeting was saying. We, it's been, we've been fighting, the NDP has been fighting for decades to get pharmacare going and, and for two or three elections to get a national dental program uh, for, for uh, 
low-income Canadians. So they could claim victory on this one. And I think they'll be able to say at the next election, we won this because we agreed to do this. So we should be rewarded. There is a danger, though, for the Liberal Party that moving too far to the left, they are leaving the centre unoccupied. And some blue liberals that I call blue liberals, like uh, John Manley liberals or um, uh, Paul Martin liberals, who, you know, yes, they are liberals, but they are worried about, you know, they, they, they are concerned about the heavy spending that we're seeing. They may not find themselves very happy with this deal because uh, the government will be spending a lot and the fiscal anchors that have been used to, you know, trying to balance the budget and get enough revenues to cover the expenses, that's out of the window. In fact, it's been out of the window since the Liberals came to power. So we may have to live with a long, long, long series of huge deficits for the foreseeable future because expenses will go up. Now, on the, on the other hand, um, the economy has been doing better than expected. The inflation is increasing tax revenues for government. So they'll be spending all of that, but there will be a, still a monster around the corner, which is inflation. And that's a, worry, uh, a worrisome thought because uh, there's not much the government can do to fight inflation. But one of them is to try to control their spending. And we've not seen that in Ottawa. And okay. in terms of the impact on the Conservative Party, they will have a huge impact because uh, Pierre Poliev, who is the, you know, the leading candidate right now, could say, we need somebody who's already in the House of Commons to fight this alliance by the Liberals and the NDP. So I'm there already, so I can fight it. And, um, but it does postpone the possibility of a federal election, of a federal election. And Jean Charest will be 64 in, in the coming weeks. So he, he, in, if the deal holds true, Jean Charest will be close to 67. Uh, will he represent real change at that time if he's elected? That's the key question. Well, competence, you can't put an age on. uh, And I think that's what people are going to be looking for. Uh, I fully agree with you on that one, though. (laughs) Listen, a couple of minutes before we go to break, and then I got a couple of more when we we come out of the break. COVID, uh, you know, we're we're seeing different parts of the, the country coming out at different stages, but we are seeing green shoots, and we're hopeful that, that we're seeing the worst of COVID behind us, although we know that it's still around. Maybe just less around how people, how different provinces are dealing with it than what, what's your sense of how the federal government are, are trying to keep manage and saying it's not over yet. And what can we do to manage expectations? Because what we can't do, and we've talked about this before, can't shut down again, but you have no. to be respectful of, of how it impacts healthcare and people and individuals and communities. What, what, what's the, what's the federal government's take on COVID to this point? Talking to federal ministers and federal officials here in Ottawa, they mentioned to me that they're cautiously optimistic that if there is a sixth wave, which is, I think, inevitable, we will be able to manage it uh, better than in previous cases. Why? Because the Canadian population uh, has been vaccinated to such a rate that it does does, uh, provide us with almost a national immunity, herd immunity, if I may say. Yeah. Um, because we're about a 81 or 85%, close to 85% full uh, double uh, uh, vaccinated population and over 60% with three doses, which is amazing. Yeah. And, and we've got good vaccines. Um, the, we've seen a new waves coming out of China. And the reason why is that they're used, they use their own vaccines. We don't know how effective that vaccine is. And there's a low vaccination rate compared to Canada, for example. So uh, the, the uh, 
Ottawa people here are pretty confident that we're going to ride the next wave with much more easy uh, this than the previous two waves, which is, to me, comforting because you're right. I don't think we can impose any more lockdowns on people. They're, they're, people are fed up with it. They want to move on and face the, um, face the next storm heads on uh, with, with the kind of uh, vaccination rate that we have. Well, I think that I think that's everyone's top of mind. I think what they and no one can forget is if the healthcare system gets overloaded, they'll have no choice because the investments, a new addition, additional investments in long-term care, healthcare, hospitals, it can't come quick enough for the next wave. So uh, we better hope that that those things are right. Listen, we're going to take a quick break. Um, this is Kitchener today on City News five seventy. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. I'm Ian McLean, presidency of the Greater Kitchener Chamber of Commerce, your guest host for today. We are back on the line with our good friend, Jean-Denis Bellavance. He is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for La Presse. And I would say one of his claims to fame has to be he has the best laugh in Ottawa. By a country. <laughs> <laughs> he spends some time with JD. He's a ton of fun to be around. Listen, um, fascinating discussion before the break, but one thing that, that I, and I was getting ready for this interview, and I remember, I think it was in 2019, because uh, you've been coming on our show for uh, business to business for many years, and remember that you did a, t- a tour, basically it's your summer vacation in 2019, and you took your RV and you did the RV across the country. I think you went west on that particular one. And I was fascinated because you did a series of, of articles from different stops along the way. And I commend that. You can go onto the La Presse website, look for that in 2019. There's a, there's a great series of articles about, about the places you were and how people were thinking and what was on their mind. And it was different in some significant ways everywhere you were. I thought it would be interesting. Take a couple of minutes and walk through what you, you know, that series of interviews, because the next question at the end is, what do you think you'd find now? So, but talk, tell us where you went and what some of your observations were. I did this RV tour uh, in uh, the summer of 2019, leading up to the federal election, because I convinced my boss that they should, should pay my gas for my RV. <laughs> and that would bring me off to Victoria <laughs> in, in British Columbia. Uh, and, and I would have to pay the gas because it would have been expensive. But the plan was to talk to people, find, uh, gauge the mood of the Canadian people uh, as the election was approaching. And I wanted to go to Western Canada because the mood there was a bit, uh, if I may say, desperate, if I may say, because namely in Alberta, you know, the energy crisis hit Alberta very hard. Uh, they had nowhere to uh, be able, n- no pipelines, enough pipelines to ship their uh, oil and gas to get the proper price for it. So uh, I jumped into my RV and uh, Travel around, I think it was 11,000 kilometers back and forth. And I met a lot of people. And the very first story that I did write was um, uh, with, with Jason Kenney. I met the premier of Alberta. I had a sit-down interview with him, all in French, because he speaks good French. And at that time, Jason Kenney was the king of the conservative movement. Three years later, he's still the king, but when the, with basically no clothes on. <laughs> because... <laughs> Because um, he, he is facing a tough time in his own province, uh, uh, the members of the party might, uh, you know, vote him out in a coming 
um, uh, review process, leadership vote. So this was, uh, and at that time, the, <clears throat> Mr. Kenny was, you know, trying to bring back Alberta to the economic engine that it was. But it was a tough time. Uh, I wrote about the fact that also downtown Calgary, 25% of the uh, office space were empty because the businesses had, had gone because it was so difficult over there. And the mood was a bit uh, um, desperate, I would say, because of the prices of the oil that went down in the economy. And also, they were they had a lot of uh, grudges against Ottawa that had passed some so many uh, laws that you know made made it difficult to continue to uh, um, live off the energy sector in in Alberta. And in British Columbia, the, the funny thing is that I wrote about constructions of pipeline and how it was dividing Alberta and BC. But today, with the world events. Uh, I think we are having a second thought about constructions of pipelines. Although we want to move away from energy, uh, fossil, fossil energy, there's still a need for the foreseeable future. And we're trying to replace the oil that is being sell, sold by Russia to European, European countries, which is used by Russia to finance its war against Ukrainian people. I also met farmers in Alberta. Uh, and at that time, the big country that was seen as the enemy was China, because remember, we had two Canadians still stuck in jail. Uh, we had Meng Wanzhou here in Vancouver, but we had our two Michaels that were in prison. And there were a lot of uh, economic sanctions, sort of, against uh, uh, Canada, including uh, a ban on exportation of canola. And I met the farmers who was, you know, seeing losing money as a result of the actions taken by China. But today, I think uh, he would be happy because uh, they think that the things got better because we got the raise of the two Michaels and that May, uh, May Wanzhou uh, got, managed to release. But it, all in all, I would say that it was a wonderful trip and I would love to do it again to find out what would be the mood of Canadians today. Yeah, I, I think that that would be. Uh, now we don't want you to leave Ontario this summer because we still have we have a lot of celebrating to do after two years uh, of only seeing you virtually. But but next summer would be a real fast because I think there's a book in there somewhere. Your articles are really insightful and, and interesting. And then to go back uh, three or four years later after COVID, uh, I suspect that there will be some is systemic or some real changes, not just ephemeral changes that, that COVID has left behind. Listen, uh, as always, thank you for being so generous with your time. We uh, appreciate you joining us today, JD. Thank you very much for the invitation and hope to talk to you soon. Ian. All right. We've been joined by our good friend, Jean-Denis Bellavos. He's the Ottawa Bureau Chief for, uh, for La Presse. We'll be back uh, after a quick break. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. I'm Ian McLean, President CEO of the Greater Kitchener Water Chamber of Commerce. I'm your guest host this afternoon. Joined on the line by my good friend, uh, Ron Gagnon. He is the, the President and CEO of the Grand River Hospital. Welcome to the show, Ron. Thanks, Ian. Happy to be here. Listen, this has been, uh, you, you've done amazing work over the last uh, two years, along with everyone in healthcare, public health, or your colleague Lee and Patrick from the other hospitals. Um, and and we know that that this has been uh, has impacted everybody in the community, but n- no one more so than our our collective healthcare system and and workers. And I guess the question I I, I come to at, as we 
kind of go to the next stage of of of, of COVID a pandemic to maybe an endemic, hopefully. How are the people doing? I mean, that's, that's got to be one of the biggest concerns you have in terms of leading a team that have got to be bone tired. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and I can tell you, it's, it's something that consumes a lot of our time. Um, and uh, you know, it's somewhat unfair, I think, to try and find one word for it. Um, you know, they definitely are tired, right? This has been... Uh, two years uh, running at, at maximum, right? So, uh, you know, that wears on people. And uh, in addition to that, they have had to deal with really sick people and had to deal with a lot of tragic outcomes. And that's layered over top of some of the challenges they see every day, right? So, uh, you know, people in healthcare have uh, huge hearts, have lots of strength, lots of creativity, and we've had to tap into all of that over the last two years, even more so than we usually do. So uh, their resilience is something that continues uh, to amaze me, quite honestly. Um, that said, you know, the, the, the healthcare workers are tired. And I think as a society, uh, there's some tiredness in there as well. And what we've seen over the last number of months is actually increasing, uh, you know, verbal abuse, physical abuse, um, you know, some some real challenges for our staff that that has been really sad to see and and, and troubling. Uh, and, and here, like other sectors and other communities, we're seeing a lot of people make choices to to leave, uh, to leave not just the organization, but the system altogether. Some are retiring, some are choosing to do something else. And, and, and you know, we're losing great people. Um, you know, our staff has, has grown quite significantly over the last two years as we've added new beds, new services, uh, you know, a lot of, of growth in our organization and some of the other hospitals in, in the community as well. Um, and so there's challenges to making sure you know, that we're doing enough recruiting to, you know, make sure there's staff for those beds. Because it's one thing to have the physical bed, but that does nothing. That doesn't provide any care. We're, you know, care gets provided by people. And, um, you know, so we're, we're working uh, quite hard on what are some of those strategies we can put in place around people's wellness, well-being. Um, you know, our people uh, team has done all kinds of work as well as our, our clinical leadership and other leaders to take different approaches to recruitment and onboarding and, and retention strategies. Some of them have good impact, um, yet but with all of that, you know, we've got a, a workforce of just over 4,000 people, including our physicians. And today we've got a 10% vacancy rate. So you can imagine how big the challenge is. Yeah, for sure. Listen, as we as we got to the at the start of the pandemic, uh, there were significant investments made because, and I think maybe speaking about um, the uh, the size of community we were, the number of beds we had in the system, which is the three hospitals combined, we were well behind what we needed just before the pandemic. We did get some investment. Are you talking about? Because I think it speaks to that people part. We got funding for more beds, which presumably included people 
but it's hard to recruit people. Uh, the people part is harder than that. But talk about the investment that we've made to get through COVID and how we need to keep that and actually do more. Um, because well, one thing that we know is all of the, except for the first um, uh, lockdown or when we ha- when we all had to stay home, every other one of them was the fact that that our hospitals and our healthcare system was going to be overwhelmed with sick people, and we needed to do something uh, to manage that. So we know we need to make more investments in healthcare. Talk about the one that was made it early on, and then we'll talk about what needs to happen moving forward. Yeah, sure. So uh, you know, just to, to go back a couple of years, uh, as we entered into this, you know, our beds per thousand people was about 1.1 in this region. And uh, to put that into context, that's uh, about half of the Canadian average, which is two, and the Ontario average, which is 1.4. And at 1.1 would actually put us behind any OECD country. So, so that's where we were starting. And, and all three hospitals, you know, a daily occurrence was being over capacity and having uh, a high number of people waiting on a stretcher in our emergency rooms for an inpatient bed. And that's the why. There just wasn't enough beds. And um, as you said, a significant investment was made in beds and other services. Uh, so if I think of Grand River, uh, we, we've added uh, about 165 beds to, uh, we started with 514. So that gives you a, a sense of, of the magnitude of, of, of addition of beds. And I know that St. Mary's grew by a third, and I knew that I know that uh, Cambridge also added beds. So pretty significant investment there and required us to, to add a lot of people. And then all three of us, you know, started to get into some services that we typically don't do, right? All three of us got involved in, uh, you know, COVID assessments and assessment centers. You know, I know ours, you know, we, we've done almost 230,000 tests so far. Mm-hmm. Right? We all got involved in vaccine distribution, right? And, and our team, you know, has put over 300,000 shots in arms, right? Uh, we all got involved in, um, you know, those you know, supporting other sectors, right? All of this is great work because we worked as one system, right? So, so that's a real benefit. But a, a significant amount of growth and a significant amount of uh, people stepping up and creativity and, um, you know, doing things way faster than we ever thought we could have. And, and I would say that the government has been quite good at, at supporting the extra costs, right? So, um, you know, if I was putting it into context, again, just looking at Grand River over the last two years, the additional costs, including lost revenue, uh, which we just got some funding for today, which was great. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the additional costs to this organization have been north of 100 million. Right? So that's, that's a pretty significant number. And, and the government has been quite good and the ministry has been quite good about recognizing those costs. And I think that's, I I would characterize it as that's table stakes now as we move past COVID that we need to keep that. That's just just to kind of get us to a somewhat stable level, but more needs to be done. And I think that's one of the the lessons learned here is that we we need to invest more in healthcare, not just here in the region of Waterloo, although (laughs) we're very invested in that. But I think broadly across the provincial healthcare system, it was it has not been adequately resourced to, to recognize that 
we, yes, we had the pandemic, but but we were short staffed before. What are some of those other? And, and again, we we can talk. Some of it's people. Some of it's uh, um, you know the, the services that people need. The, the investment is still going to be required as you think about getting p- backlogs of diagnostics and surgeries and which quote quote are elective. Well, an elective surgery, if you need a hip replacement and you're in pain, is is doesn't feel elective to the individual, but to the system when you're triaging you know, you, you're going to have to have those significant investments. Talk a little bit about, about digging our way out of the, you know, staying where we are, keeping those investments, and then having the resources to kind of get caught caught up, if you will. Yeah, yeah. you know, all, all great points. And uh, as you say, the uh, the investments that have been made in some new capacity, so I'll, I'll use beds and hospitals as an example, is definitely table stakes. So just to put it in, into uh, a frame for you today, uh, just before I came on the show, you know, I, I took a quick look at our, at our dashboard and there's 18 people waiting for an inpatient bed. So keep in mind, we've opened 168 new beds, 165 new beds, we're full. Yeah. And we only have two people with COVID in our, in our facility today. So, so that, that shows you the, the demand on our system. Now, where we need to make investments. So you need to, for sure, keep making investments to make sure we have the capacity to not have to shut down the next time we have a spike or the next time we have a pandemic. And there will be another. Mm-hmm. Right? I think yeah. all, of us, all of us probably can agree there will be another pandemic. So we need to be ready for that. We also need to be looking, though, at healthcare more broadly, as you said. So what are the investments that can be made in home care, as an example, right? And so uh, you know, I've got a 80-year-old father. If he needs care, I want him to be able to get that care at home whenever possible. Right? So how do we make sure that home care system uh, you know, is, is strong, robust, and, and has the investments that it needs? How do we make sure that uh, the community sector uh, has, has the, the investments it needs? You know, One of the other things that we've seen through this pandemic is uh, how different parts of our of our community and different parts of our society don't you know they don't have the same privileges that you and I have, mm-hmm. and we yeah. have to address that. Right? There's an inequity there. So um, I th- the challenge becomes, Ian, you can invest everywhere, and and I think the the challenge that we have as a, as society and, and a, as a gov- the government will have is where to pick your spots, right? Mm-hmm. To, to have the, the biggest impact. Uh, and for sure, the entire health system needs investment and ongoing investment and building on that. You know. One of the things that I'm really uh, impressed with is the the work that you and your colleague Lee Fairclose, uh, your counterpart at St. Mary's General Hospital, found or at St. Mary's General Hospital, is we know that the 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 next thing that our community needs at 650,000 people on our way to 850,000 people is we need a new hospital. Uh, a, a smart hospital that's efficient and, and addresses the needs that we need, but we do need new new infrastructure. Grand River is not, I mean, it has been 50 years since we've had, uh, you know, any sort of significant uh, investment in that. Now, we're very lucky that, that our, your colleague Patrick uh, and Cambridge Memorial has had an expansion, but that's to some extent just putting a Band-Aid on a, on a bigger problem. Talk about the, the, the work that's being done to make sure that, that, uh, that the needs of our community are being 
going through the process so that the government understands what it is that we need in terms of the infrastructure, the hospital infrastructure to serve our community and the, and the healthcare system. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're right. The two, the two hospitals uh, are working together really early stages of, um, you know, doing that work to make sure that the community has what it needs uh, for a world-class health system. Mm-hmm. are part of that system. So the work that we're doing includes Patrick is at the table actually, and, and we're benefiting from his insight uh, and benefiting from the insights of others as well. And um, you know, working to to make sure that our voice is heard, um, you know, around the needs of this community, uh, not just for today, but you know, 20, 25 years out, right? So. We know we're going to grow by 45, probably 50%. We know we're going to age. You know, the, the age group over 75 is probably going to grow by almost 170% uh, over the over the next uh, quarter century. Those are all big uh, demands on your health system and, uh, and other infrastructure. So uh, the two hospitals are working quite closely together. Uh, you know, wanting to make sure that you know, we put the right pieces in place to, to secure the support that we need in the community uh, and at the government level to keep this, uh, this process going. And as I said, really early days on, on the planning front uh, and both convinced that you know, this is a real important investment for our community and, and for our region and for, for the province. Well, we're, we're all uh, blessed as a region to have such great leaders uh, in yourself and Lee and, and Patrick at, at, our, at our hospitals. And, and good fortune that you actually came to us from up north and actually completed a new hospital in the, uh, where you came from in your previous posting. So you've got some experience in this and we'll all benefit from that. Listen, we're going to take a quick break um, and you stick with us. We're going to have a few more minutes after the break. Um, but it is time for a for a quick news break. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. I'm Ian McLean, President of the Greater Kitchener the Chamber of Commerce, and your guest host today. We continue our conversation with Ron Ganya. He is the President and CEO of Grand River Hospital, Ron, um, fascinating discussion before the break, and I, I've been taking the opportunity with some of the great folks that have been joining us on the show today. Um, we're it, you know, in a new stage. We've lifted some of the public health restrictions. There's, a, I think, a, an optimism by most people that green shoots are here, better days are ahead. Um, but I, I can never help um, ask the question. It's been two long years, and for, I guess, from our earlier discussion, for healthcare workers and those that are in front line, it's like dog years. It wasn't two years. It was like uh, like 14 years, right? Like that, it, it, I equated to dog years. What are the, what are maybe some of your, the takeaways or, because everyone's experienced this differently, whether you're in leadership, healthcare, it doesn't matter where you are. You've experienced this differently. Um, what, what are some of the, your, you know, personal or observations uh, uh, that you think we should be thinking about uh, as we move forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, Ian. You know, and and uh, I'll start on the personal side. You know, one of my big takeaways, and I'm sure others have had this, is just that reinforcement of the importance of family. Right? We all got uh, somewhat of a gift to be able to actually spend more time with family, 
Um, you know, my kids might not say that was a gift for them, but you know, they're, they're all older. But uh, you know, we did get a chance to, to see each other more and, and, and spend a little bit more time together. So, so, so that's been a, a real positive uh, of the last two years. I think when I look at the system, when I look at the on the work side of it. Um, you know, some of the things that, that are the silver linings in, in the last two years are uh, the realization of what's possible. Right? Uh, there's many things that we were doing, you know, the remote work, as an example, uh, for, for our organization. You know, a lot of people that work in our organization didn't have to get in the car every day and come here. We're able to have more flexible days and, uh, you know, we're doing great work as, as they did that. You know, virtual care. Um, you know, opening our eyes to some of that, you know, our ability to put new solutions in place and to try things, uh, which fits really well with this community, right? You know, that this whole innovation spirit that, that lives in, in, that we're well known for in this community, in this region, uh, we saw that in spades. And the other thing was, um, you know, on the silver lining piece, and I really go back, it, it really started heavily at the beginning of, of the pandemic, and then it, it continued throughout, was that that whole barn raising spirit where everybody comes to the table to help. Mm -hmm. right? And it didn't matter if people weren't in healthcare. You know, I, I remember Lee, Patrick, and I having uh, you know, weekly, if not daily, conversations with people in the tech community saying, you know, what do you need? How can we help? And it didn't have to be tech related. They were bringing PP, you know, personal protective equipment to the table. They were bringing ideas to the table. They're bringing connections. All of that had, you know, had impact. And so one of my takeaways is, uh, is just that positive community spirit um, that exists here. And, and, and I know it exists in, in other communities as well. Um, the other thing, you know, from the last two years is, you know, we still have a long way to go when it, when it comes to uh, our healthcare system, equity, uh, diversity, inclusion. Uh, you know, I think our, our, our collective eyes uh, were open to something that we probably should have seen long, long ago. And, um, you know, my hope is that the commitment that there is to addressing those types of systemic issues, systemic racism, et cetera, uh, will continue on. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. And it's, uh, I, I think one of the things that, that I've noticed is, you know, the, the collaboration that's going on between the two hospitals or the all three hospitals actually has never been stronger. Uh, I think the, the community expects that, that, that municipalities get along, that the university sector and colleges get along and, and work together. Hospitals is we need to do that because we are stronger together. So uh, great, great way to, uh, to finish off. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ron. I know how busy you are. Thank you to you and your team for um, not only uh, serving us now, but for the last two years, it's been, uh, it's been uh, uh, so much so, so appreciated. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Ian, and they do deserve all the credit. All right. And we've been joined by our good friend, Ron Ganya. He, of course, is the president and CEO of Grand River Hospital. It's time for a news break. And coming up after the news, we'll be joined by Tova Davidson, and she is the uh, president and CEO of Sustainable Waterloo Region. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570.
Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. I'm Ian McLean, President of the Greater Kitchener Waterloo Chamber of Commerce, your guest host this afternoon. Joined on the line, as promised, by Tova Davidson, good friend of mine and of the Chamber of Commerce. And she, of course, is the President and CEO of Sustainable Waterloo Region. Tova, thank you for joining us on this Friday afternoon. I know it's the end of a long week and you're busy, busy with many things coming up. Appreciate you joining us today. For you, the world, Ian McLean, no problem anytime. There you go. Listen, uh, and we got lots to get to, but I, I, I know you and I have talked in the past. We both have been uh, not-for-profits. We've, we've got small but mighty staffs that we're all still working at home. Um, are you still, how are you guys dealing with, with coming out of the pandemic? Are you, are you getting ready to go back to the office? Well, I'm eager to get out into the community. For me, the office is important and my team is unbelievable. They've been so great through this whole thing. We went home on that March 14th, I think it was, two years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I was hoping I would see them in a couple of weeks, but they just kept trucking and pushing and doing all the incredible work that they do. So uh, kudos to them. And for that, I don't mean just our staff team, but we've got an absolutely outstanding volunteer team on top of it. Um, so we couldn't do what we've done over the past couple of years without them. Uh, but for me, it's getting back into the community. So much yep. of what we do is building community, building connection, building vision, getting people together, being that intermediary. Um, and that's really hard to do virtually. Uh, yeah. So in person, seeing people in person. Oh, boy, I cannot wait. Well, it, one of the things is we've all and everyone has had to manage and say, we got to keep going. There's still work to be done. Um, we've been joined by a number of guests that we've done everything differently. Healthcare's done differently. Policing's done differently. Municipal services and, and the work that, that you're doing on climate and, and working with businesses on, on greenhouse gas uh, reductions and, and all those sorts of things. So maybe I'll, I'm going to ask the open-ended question because um, what have you been working at? Like what, what are the, what is the update? What are the, the two or three things you want to highlight that have been, that you've that have been keeping you busy over the last period? Well, you know, uh, at first we thought that the pandemic would take the focus off of climate change, and it did for a little while. People didn't really think about it so much. But I actually think the pandemic and all the social issues that it rose to the surface includes climate change. Um, And actually, we've seen things accelerate. We had our biggest growth ever last year, and we didn't do proactive outreach for membership. People were coming to us saying, I really think I need to address this. can, Can you help? Uh, which is incredible, um, and it's continued into this year. We planted our first microforest, so we've planted a new program, developed a new program where we're planting reforestation areas in urban, undevelopable land, places where we're not going to build something anyway. So let's return it to habitat. Let's use it to draw down carbon out of the environment, reduce heat island effects. We put them in less privileged communities so that what we're doing is reducing heat island effects so they're not suffering so much in the summertime. Uh, So that's been really exciting. Um, and we have had uh, some really cool things happening. We've got um, some big news coming in our own evening of recognition. Don't want to share too much of it. We've developed, we're developing a couple of new programs, which you and I have been talking about. One is mm-hmm. to help the development sector be ready for what's going to be required by code, what customers are asking for in this transition to um, low carbon buildings. Um, and that's going to be a big driver of economic prosperity. Think of all the retrofits we need to do to all the existing buildings we have. Huge economic driver for us. And uh, this week, we launched the Clean Economy Sector Map. 
So that is a map that we did in partnership with Waterloo Economic Development Corporation, EDC, the region yeah. of Waterloo and Waterloo Region uh, Community Energy. And together with Sustainable Waterloo Region, we actually developed this map uh, to feature how many organizations there are in this region already working on the clean economy. And it includes clean tech and energy generation and battery storage and sustainable transportation, all that kind of stuff. And actually, the um, Waterloo EDC said if they get 100 people applying to be on the map, they figure that's pretty good. We had over 125. It's a major sector driving this community's economic prosperity. So, so maybe explain that because I know what you're talking about, but only because it just you you before we went on air said this would be like the auto sector map of saying here's yeah. how many auto sector supply chains, so everything from Toyota to suppliers, tier two, tier three suppliers. This is the equivalent of saying, this is what your auto sector looks like, or this is what your food food processing sector looks like. You're saying there's a there's 130 businesses on the map that are already doing, uh, you know, gr- you know, a- a- environmental or green technology, those sorts of things. Yeah. So we we divide it into like zero waste product projects or products, uh, consulting companies. We're looking at how do we do renewable energy generation, renewable energy storage. How do what do we have in clean buildings, green buildings, regenerative buildings? All of these areas, there is a major sector driving this economy, um, and most people don't realize that we are actually the. Um, sustainability innovation capital of Canada. We hang our hat on the tech innovation of Canada, tech innovation capital, but we are already the sustainability innovation capital of Canada. Did you know that the University of Waterloo has not only the first, but the largest faculty of environment in Canada? That the Mm -hmm. Blue Box was launched here, that the Reap House was one of the first demonstration sites to show how you could retrofit an existing building to near net zero, you look at the Evolve One building, which we were part of, it is the demonstration of absolutely good business case for a low carbon um, net positive energy building. There's so many examples I could like go forever if you wanted well, to well, know. Why don't you, and we, I think we have talked about this before, but uh, maybe on business to business, but um, talk about the Evolve One building, because I think that's where you kind of say this isn't just like for tree huggers or for those that are really, I mean, this was a business decision made by the Conrad group uh, or the Conrads and, and, uh, and saying, we're going to build it to, you know, so describe what it means and, sure, sure. and all of the investments and innovations in technology, because it, it, there's a business case for doing it. Uh-huh. So just as framework for those who might not know sustainable Waterloo region, we are a business organization. My background is not in environment is mm. not in nonprofit. I actually come from the business world. And we never ask an organization to do anything that's not actually good for their business in some other way besides sustainability. We actually see that intersection. It's always about building the business stronger. So in the case of the Evolve One building, the idea was how do we demonstrate that there's a really good business case to the development sector to build sort of high sustainability, low energy load, um, and to do it in a way that's actually going to get a good return on investment. So this building, the Evolve One building, which was developed and is owned and managed by the Cora Group, um, mm-hmm. that building is a net positive energy building. It generates more energy than it needs. So it means it's a zero carbon building. So that's called a regenerative building because it's giving clean energy back to the grid. It doesn't use any bleeding edge technology. It's all leading edge. So think geothermal Uh, good insulation and windows. There's a solar wall, which is a passive heating. There's solar panels. There's LED lights. 
but nothing that would make you like raise an eyebrow, like, ooh, that's risky. They just put them together in the right way. And what they figured out when we did the financial life cycle assessment is that it's actually really good for business. It's done entirely in the developer's approved budget. Um, if you ask Adrian Conrad, how much more did it cost? He said from his standard sort of lead silver, lead gold building, it was like five to 8% more expensive. But if you think about the actual long-term life cycle of it, he has zero utility costs Ooh. in a 110,000 square foot building. Why wouldn't you build that way? that building will live, live 50 years. If it lives 50 years, the return on investment is enormous. It's a fantastic business case. That's what we're looking for. Well, and, and, and that's, that's important. Is it making a little, you know, it's almost like a pound of uh, um, uh, whatever that term is. You want, you, <laughs> prevention is worth a pound of cure. You, you put a little bit more into the initial build. If you're building a new building or retrofitting, the savings, again, from electricity, the prices of that, we all know, is is a huge cost of doing business for, for any business, um, um, whether it's manufacturing, technology, take your pick. Everyone is paying paying big bucks. So that return on investment, those are the types of things, and maybe uh, you're, you're exactly right. Sustainable Waterloo, talk about your um, about how you draw that connection for businesses saying, I want to do the right thing environmentally, but I don't have a lot more to invest in it. Is you're pulling all those pieces together saying, save money here, good for the environment, and it ends up being a good business case. Yeah, 100%. And it's often looking at the total cost of operation. So it's not just how much is my utilities going to change. It can be things like if I change my processes, are my employees going to be more productive and therefore we're going to generate more product and we'll make more money. And that might actually be a more efficient process. Business has to understand that sustainability means efficiency. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. Operate your building, operate your business more efficiently and you will be more sustainable. There's a great story that I love with one company we work with who looked at their coffee pot. So they're like, how much are we losing in sustainability in our coffee pot? How much energy is being used? How much water are we throwing down the drain? How much grounds are we throwing out? How much time are people standing there brewing fresh coffee because it's gone cold or gross? So they <laughs> changed, right? Who doesn't have that happen? They changed their coffee pot to one with a carafe that didn't actively heat the, wa- heat the pot over time. And the coffee stayed fresher longer. They did the calculations. It saved them $600 a year to buy a $100 coffee pot. Yeah, well, it's... It, it... It is incredible. I think one of the things that strikes me is, I think uh, a little bit like, um, and you know, transit is a big, big thing now of saying, um, but transit is not just an environmental thing, or or it, or, or it, it, what it is is it's it it is saying it's a convenience thing. It's people not getting into their car, having a more options for them. But ten years ago, or maybe fifteen years ago, that wasn't the case. It has really changed. And I think the same thing with, with on environmental issues is when you look at it and say, I want to do the right thing, I've got limitations on budgets, or I've got, you know, you have budgets in place, that there is a whole range of things that you can do personally. But certainly the, what Sustainable Waterloo is doing is, is working with businesses um, to, to go through that process uh, coffee pots to you know how you heat how you how you retrofit using windows some of these I, I think you're right some of these things are not really new technologies just using the technologies that already exist yeah and what we find is that businesses when they have something else happening already you know we know that there's building infrastructure renewal that has to be done 
Well, if you have to redo your windows anyway, why would you not do more efficient windows to save you money in the long run? Why would you not insulate better? Why would you not do that kind of thing? Get a better, more efficient HVAC system, right size your equipment. Those are really the low hanging fruit. Everybody thinks I'm gonna come in and say to them, you should put solar panels on your building. That's the last step. Only after you've done everything else to reduce your load and become more efficient, then we talk about solar panels if that's the way you need to go. Um, maybe let's go back because I, I know you and I have had a conversation about how we do some of the industries that, that you know, have been not resistant, but we haven't done a good job of explaining uh, how they can do things differently. Um, you know, construction's one of those. We and I have had a conversation, said, let's talk to our friends at Grand Valley Construction Association and the contractors and the developers and the architects, pull them all together and say, here are the technologies that exist. Um, so that so that they're that they get the the information and the education and can say, well, I can do that. I mean, there's nothing that that the Evolve One building required a specialty because we had local contractors. I think it was Malou Blamey, and we had a lot of all the subcontractors were local. They are all able to do the to do those those um, uh, those retrofits or that new build, and we have the expertise right here in Waterloo Region. Uh, talk about the importance of, and maybe this is just on the education front, is taking advantage of the great companies we have here, the skilled workers that they have, and the opportunity to to make a difference and, and kind of lead uh, as we often do here in Waterloo Region. You know, I think you're absolutely right, Ian, and you've put it right, the nail right on the head, that what we have to do is actually look at the education piece. A lot of people ask me about what technology do we need to get to the vision outlined in the Transform WR strategy, which was developed by Climate Action WR, which is a program we happily run in partnership with Reef Green Solutions. Um, what we all, I always say to that question is, what do we need to move forward is actually not the technology. We already have most of the technology we need for a equitable, prosperous, resilient, low carbon future. What we need is for people to understand what we need to do, the benefits of it, the will to change, the will to invest, and to see the long-term vision. In terms of an organization, in the areas you and I work in, one of the things I think we really need to do is to teach people to do a financial life cycle assessment. Forget like operating costs versus um, capital costs. You need to put the two together, and then the business case becomes abundantly clear. But that is an education piece. It's a culture shift piece, and that is far harder than getting people to understand how the technology works. And so it really is the focus. Well, you know, I, I remember from my days on city council is that that it was like there was two universes when you would do budgeting and they would say, well, here's the operations budget for parks and rec yeah. and everything was over here. And then they'd say in your operation of your facilities and then they'd say, well, we're going to build something new. And that was the capital budget. And you had to live in the window and say, here's what's going to cost instead of, and, and I think municipalities started the process probably even before business of saying, uh, it's really more important to me to know what the operation cost is going to be. So do we, do we make a difference in, you know, uh, hybrid cars or, or, or lead buildings in, in the, in the new builds that they do. Um, so there's a little bit of catch up because the innovators in the, in the, in the uh, universities and college, the tech innovators here, this technology has already been developed here. Mm-hmm. In some ways, municipalities, are, now we're helping your organization, helping business catch up and say, wow, it's already here. We just have to, um, you know, get out of our own way of saying the, this is the way we always do things. 
and 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 just uh, look for the alternative, which is which has a tremendous benefit. You know, it's interesting because there are five ways that organizations typically get a good return on investment for sustainability actions. First is operating costs. That's the thing everyone thinks of. The second is actually risk mitigation. There is risk of climate change reporting, risk on your physical building, risk of the cost of carbon, risk of the cost of energy. That's the second. The third is actually green branding. So for them to actually talk about like, oh, we differentiate from our competition, you should choose us. The fourth is employee retention and attraction. People want to work where they believe. Mm -hmm. Um, They believe the same thing. And businesses measure what matters to them, and then they manage what they measure. And so the foundation of everything for us is let's actually figure out your, your data. And finally, and this is what you were actually alluding to, is that organizations that want to be more sustainable actually have to be more innovative because you can't do things status quo anymore. So that Mm -hmm. innovation permeates the whole organization, which is such a cool thing to see because then they start innovating on their products and they start innovating on their um, human resource policies and all kinds of interesting things. And maybe that's part of the tie back to the pandemic is we had to innovate everything and people started to see, oh, I have an opportunity to move in the sustainability way as well. Great place to leave it. We'll have you back just on the other side. We're going to take a quick break because we'll talk about some of the ways we're recognizing uh, and educating what both our organizations are doing. But we'll get back to that when we come back for a break. We will take a quick break. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. We continue our conversation with the inimitable Tova Davidson, and she is the President and CEO of Sustainable Waterloo Region. Um, I alluded to this before because we have, I think it's a collective we, the royal we, both organizations have a big day on April 21st. So I think uh, I'd like you to go first because you have your uh, annual recognition event uh, on April the 21st. Tell us about that. We do. So every year we run an event to say, look at all the great things happening in this community and sustainability and recognize some of the businesses in our networks. Um, and so that event is being held for the third year now online. I'm really hoping it will not be online next year. Um, and we will be sharing some of the things we've done as Sustainable Waterloo Region some of the things, some of the award winners. So we're recognizing partnerships and innovation, commuting, rookie of the year, new businesses that have done big stuff. Um, And that's happening online from three to five on the 25th. So people can go and sign up. It's free. Just come and listen to all the amazing stories of people in the community um, so that you can hear some of the great stuff that they're doing. And we can tell you about those great stories. Listen, and, and earlier in the day, you will be participating, and, and we always partner with uh, the, the Greater KW Chamber partners with you on our annual Energy and Environment Forum. And I can't remember, I think this has got to be about 30. It's, it's, there's a lot of them. We've been doing this for a long time. We have. Um, but but we, you're going to be part of, uh, you're going to moderate a panel, and, and we're going to have some conversation about everything from, um, you know, uh, energy policy and how we pa- generate power to innovation that's happening um, talk a little bit about, and then you're going to give an update uh, as you have today on, on the things that, that businesses that are attending should be thinking about for themselves. It's a, it's usually a great day of sharing information, but also celebrating 
new technologies and the conversations that we need to continue to have of how we get from here to there. And there's a lot of uh, things that have to happen along the way. Yeah, you know, these panels and these conversations at the Energy and Environment Forum are always such great ones because it really does speak to all of the organizations that are innovating, but also those that are interested in stepping into this sustainable business world. What does it mean for them? Um, and really excited. We've done some reach out and I don't want to share yet who it's going to be, but reach outs to local companies that do renewable energy, that do development, that do architecture and engineering, all the things that we're seeing that moves us towards that clean and prosperous future and where that intersection of Waterloo Region driving change happening um, and how we are becoming more um, economically prosperous through this action, that it's not a, a cost to us, it's actually a benefit. We need to flip that mindset. And the Chamber does such great work to bring that to the forefront. So really excited okay. about that. One last time, because we're about out of time, where does someone go to register for your recognition event? sustainablewr.ca and just click on the get involved go to our event page if you want to see uh, uh tova earlier in the day come to or you can register for the energy environment forum at greaterkwchamber.com listen thanks for joining us today always a pleasure to have you keep up the great work so great to be here thanks ian all right thanks so much and thanks uh, to everyone for joining us uh, and listening in today many thanks to producer polly and executive producer Brittany. Total pros that make an amateur like me um, um, uh, possible on the on the show. Look forward to uh, you having having you join us next Friday. But now over to the news newsroom for City News Five Seventy News Weather and Traffic.